Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number five in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast number four, we reviewed several of the significant conflicts between Great Britain and her European counterparts, as well as the Native Americans in North America. We looked, for example, at the War of Jenkins Ear, the War of Austrian Succession, and even the Seven Years' War. In the common denominator, that I wanted to stress, and I'm reminding listeners of that as well in this podcast episode, is that Great Britain won all of those wars. She defeated every one of her European equals individually on the battlefield, as well as when they even ganged up on her. Even when the European countries joined sides with the Native Americans, Great Britain still won. She did not know what losing was. And one particular British officer by the name of George Washington was keenly aware of all of those victories and how it was negatively going into Great Britain's head, so to speak. But he also knew that it was costing Great Britain a significant amount of money for those victories because of all the treaties that resolved those conflicts, while Great Britain was certainly getting richer in terms of landed wealth, nobody was replacing her liquid wealth. As a result, Great Britain, by the early 1770s, was getting very close to going bankrupt. Ironically enough, at that same time is when Great Britain started tapping on the colonists' shoulders in great in the British North American colony to help defer the cost of those significant victories. That said, we ended that podcast by looking at the three stages of a political revolution by Dr. Crane Britain. So we'll move on today by looking at that American revolution through the eyes, ironically enough, not of the American revolutionaries themselves. I cover that in detail, okay, according to some of my prior students or former students, maybe nauseatingly detail, but I do cover that in detail in the American Revolution, uh, during in the American History series, in American History 1. So if you're interested in the American Revolution from the American perspective, even though I do incorporate the global reception of that as well, again, I encourage you to listen to my series on American history. For world history, though, I'm not going to be looking at the revolution, as I say, through the shoes of, in the eyes of George Washington. Rather, what is the ripple effect of that conflict in Europe, as this is world history? First off, just a reminder, as we move on now with podcast number five, just a reminder that the key issue with 
the British North American colonist to dispel the myth was not taxes by itself. British citizens were not against paying taxes. After all, their British counterparts in Great Britain proper, as well as other colonies of Great Britain, clearly had to pay taxes. So the North American colonists weren't against that. What they were against is having to be told the amount of taxes that they're being paid, that they have to pay, and on what items. There was never any discussion. And that's where that phrase is accurate, taxation without representation. That was the key to the hostilities and the unrest. Taxation without representation. Hey, we'll pay the taxes, but let's have a discussion. Let's have some colonial representation as to what items will get taxed and at what rate. But King George III of Great Britain, much less Parliament, would have none of that. As Parliament said, you, the North American colonists, have representation virtually. In other words, the citizens in the island nation proper, essentially they're saying, we know what's good for you, and therefore we're representing you. But you see, prior to the 1770s, and actually until 1760, the North American colonists had been enjoying actual representation at the various town halls and state assemblies. They represented themselves. So this was lost on them that for what worked for well over a century and a half suddenly wasn't working anymore, and it had to be represented virtually. So as a result, the unrest began to start bubbling up when it first started with attacks on stamps required for transactions, and then attacks on sugar, and then eventually tobacco, and on and on. The colonists obviously resisted, but please know that from the infamous Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770, to the Boston Tea Party in December 16th, 1773, other than those two violent outbursts, the rebellion of the colonists was relatively benign. And it was certainly, again, other than those two examples, it was certainly nonviolent. The point being, is that the colonists were resisting, but they were doing it primarily through the pocketbook. In other words, through boycotting. However, the British government still took that as hostile actions. And can you blame them? So for that reason, the unrest continued to bubble and bubble all the way through the middle of the 1770s, wherein finally, on April 19th, 1775, under the command of General Thomas Gage, 700 British officers would march to Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts in order to acquire British military hardware and bring that to safekeeping in Boston Harbor. It was not an act of war. But as we know, that was where, pardon me for using the phrase at this point, you're rolling your eyes because you've heard it so many times, the shot heard round the world, and the American Revolution began. Again, that's a summary of the events leading up to it. 
to date, we don't know who actually fired that first shot. Had it been the British side, there were plenty of American colonists to witness that and to come together and have a have a consistent story of eyewitnesses say they heard and or saw the British fire first. Likewise, with 700 British officers, clearly one of them would have seen a colonist take aim and fire one of their weapons at the British. But again, no stories, no witnesses ever stepped forward. We will never know who fired the first shot. And in the absence of that, in some cases, now this is just my opinion, of course, but in some cases, what it does tend to lead to, or lead to the conclusion of, is that most likely, somewhere over a swell, a slight deviation in the topography of the land, in other words, around a small hill, or just below or on the other side of a ravine, or small creek valley, chances are, some unbeknownst colonist was attempting to secure dinner that night, saw his kill or her kill in front of them, took the shot, but because tensions were so high between the rebel colonists and the British that the moment that shot was heard, they both sides assumed it was the other and immediately took up arms and retaliated. Can you imagine the look on the face, if it was a, lo a lone would-be hunter who took a single shot to try to bring home dinner that night to hear a barrage of gunfire behind him or her, having no idea technically what that shot just started. Chances are that hunter would have gone down the infamous logs in the, in the uh, logs of American and world history as Mrs. O'Leary's cow as being wrongfully blamed for starting the Chicago fire in October of 1871. But again, history is lost to that. Chances are we'll never know. But the American Revolution had indeed begun. Please remember something else about the revolution. Again, something that the British and counterparts as well as the European countries were noting. At no time were more than 35% of British colonists actually willing to take up arms against Great Britain. There was a massive amount of reluctance with clearly 35 to 40% of colonists unduly loyal to Great Britain under any cause. Yes, there would like discussion about the taxes, but just because that discussion hasn't happened yet was no reason to take up arms and George Washington was largely blamed for starting the revolution. However, with that roughly third to a little over a third of colonists that are loyal to Great Britain, and only a third actually willing to take up arms, that meant that roughly a third of the population was also on the fence. Ironically enough, that is a consistent statistic in all political revolutions that Dr. Crane Britain discovered in his treatise on the anatomy of a revolution. So therefore, George Washington truly had two thirds of his own countrymen that he could not trust if they spotted him or saw the direction that his forces were moving. It really does go to show just how much of an uphill battle George Washington truly had. He was fighting the world's most advanced, disciplined, 
and most able and certainly affluent World Navy as well as World Army. And it was all against him, including roughly two-thirds of his own countrymen. So for that reason, the revolution would take place eight full years before there would finally be a, re a resolution. Because a third at most were for him, George Washington would never have what he aspired to see of his American revolutionaries. They would never have a consistent uniform. They would never be able to fight in block formation. There would never be a standard weapon that every one of his soldiers would have. The money wasn't there and the organization wasn't there. It's not a knock against George Washington. If anything, it's a backhanded compliment because despite these significant disadvantages, George Washington would eventually, as we know, claim victory. And on that note, let's move then to the victory. By 1783, mind you, by October of 1783, Great Britain will have flushed through five different commanding officers. From Gage to Cornwallis, they would flush through five superior commanders who were never able to secure the surrender papers from George Washington or the Founding Fathers. Meanwhile, all the colonial soldiers fought the entire time under one supreme commander, George Washington. He would defeat, again, the largest, most well-trained military force in the world. By Christmas Eve, 1783, any country in the world that had access to a printing press knew the name George Washington. He started out in April 1775, reviled by far more of his own countrymen than they would ever praise him. Eight years later, he would arguably be the most famous man in the world. But as that conflict came to a close, and while it does seem that I have George Washington clearly on a massive pedestal, and I'm not here to take it down, take him down from there, not at all, but I do want to put his activities into a perhaps different perspective than what you might have been exposed to. Please know that George Washington did not force the British off of the mainland continent. First off, Great Britain never left the continent even after she surrendered. She still had significant land holdings in modern-day Canada, reaching all the way west to the Mississippi River Valley. She still was a significant presence on the North American continent. Secondly, even though Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington in October of 1783, he fully intended that the revolution would continue, that the fighting would resume once the final thaw happened in the following spring of 1782. The only reason that that didn't happen had nothing to do directly with Washington or the Founding Fathers. Rather, it was Parliament who controlled the power of the purse, as do our House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., they control the budget. The president can declare war all he wants, but he cannot conduct the war unless the House of Representatives is on board because they're the ones writing the checks. Likewise, Parliament was the one to force King George 
to surrender to Washington's forces. It was for economic reasons. That's not to take away a victory. Victory is victory. And in war, there are no prizes for coming in second place. And sorry, Great Britain, but you came in second place. George Washington and the Founding Fathers, they came in first place. And they demanded their 300,000 plus square acres that they eventually would get. Plus, how many more fold? Eventually having the territory going west to the Mississippi River Valley. They defeated, truly, the largest, most well-trained force in the world. But believe it or not, Britain's loss would actually benefit themselves more so. Please remember, Great Britain was no dummy. She had an incredible brain trust. As leaders in Parliament in both the House of Lords and the House of Commons said, what do the American colonists really expect to be able to do? They've never had any experience self-governing. When Great Britain's ships sailed away for the final time and the soldiers retreated up into modern-day Canada off of, quote-unquote, sovereign American soil, what were the Americans supposed to do? What kind of economy would they have? What kind of political system? Those questions, by and large, were never concretely answered during the war itself. That's the reason why two-thirds of British counterparts here in the colonial colonies, excuse me, British colonies, wanted nothing to do with rebellion. We have the world's most respected, most sound currency. If we cut ourselves off from that, what becomes our currency? Oh, sure, we had that thing called the continental dollar. That and sixpence would give you... A, a cup of coffee and a maybe a small meal. Other than that, it was worthless. And our political system? Sure, by 1781, we had created something called the Confederation Congress, but that political system wasn't worth the parchment it was written on either. If it was, then why would it fail? Literally just a few years later. So again, because this is the podcast series on world history, let's take a quick glance, therefore, at what was the impact of that American experiment in government, as well as in the, in the battlefield, what was the reaction as the news of America's victory bled through European society? Now, here's where I'm advancing a little bit because I won't cover it in the world history series, but that's going to be the result here of the eventual famous summer of 1787, when the Founding Fathers will formulate what becomes known as the Constitution of the United States. We would be the first country in the world to have a Constitution govern an entire independent country. We would have the first. To date, we still have the world's oldest active working national Constitution. The only active constitution technically older than ours that is still in effect is not for an entire country, however, it is only for an individual state, and that, of course, being none other than Massachusetts itself. Not to take away the work of John Adams in creating that constitution, but technically it is older than ours. But as a for national governing control, America still holds the oldest. Heck, France will flush through five constitutions alone in the 20th century. 
So that goes to show you again what we actually created in that famous summer of 1787. By the time the Constitution was written, signed by the Founding Fathers, ratified by nine out of the 13 states, and then eventually put into effect in 1789, that was the news that was rippling through European society. That is part of the reason why European countries were so reluctant to join George Washington and the colonists. What would be the effect if France did assist Great, uh, the United States, which they did, of course, but what would that effect have on French colonies throughout the world? Spain thought the same thing. So did Portugal and the Netherlands. As a result, they were very reluctant to embrace the news now of this new constitutional convention and a constitution that came out of it. Why? Well, specifically a few points to stress here. For my American listeners, I would like to think that you knew all this at the top of your head. However, for my international listeners, please know that here in the United States, the supreme law of the land is actually not an individual. It's not a human being. The supreme law of the land is the Constitution itself, the four pieces of parchment, and the subsequent pieces of parchment that hold the amendments to that Constitution. This is the reason why we were the laughing stock of the monarchs of Europe. This is where Great Britain did join Spain, Portugal, and, uh, and the French and other monarchs throughout the world, laughing at these young, green American statesmen by creating a document that never makes any mention of having a royal family, a king or a queen. Of course not. The American rebels and the founding fathers wanted no part of a royal family. We did not want somebody leading us who happened to be a lucky member of the DNA club. We wanted competence. We wanted leadership. That's who we wanted our presidents to be and our speakers of the House and our Senate majority leader. And don't get me started with, I know we haven't always had competence and brain trust and leadership from our American leaders. But nevertheless, ladies and gentlemen and my listeners, please know America's constitutional government is by far not a perfect system. But even in its imperfection, it is still one of the most sought after forms of government by revolutionaries around the world. I did not say every, many. That said, with the supreme law of the land being a piece of parchment, again, the kings and queens, the monarchs of Europe, laughing at America because we don't have a royal family or even a royal person. This is the reason why for my international listeners, especially, this may be somewhat surprising to you, but I, as I sit here at my desk in my home office recording this podcast, the current president of the United States can walk right in. I don't even have to acknowledge him or any former president for that matter. The Speaker of the House can walk in, the Senate Majority Leader, and I don't even have to acknowledge them. There is nothing that they can do about that. We do not require us to, to bow to our leaders, to curtsy to our female leaders. No, no, we wanted no part of that. However, I see somebody way back in the left-hand corner of the room raising their hand, pointing and saying, wait a minute, that's not right. You Americans, you do have to stand up for something. I, I just can't remember what it is. No, you're right. 
we do have to stand under certain conditions for a representative of the government. And that is in a courtroom, a room of law, when the judge walks in. When a judge or a justice walks in, in a courtroom only, everybody is to rise. However, that same judge or justice runs across the street for lunch and walks into that pick your favorite chain for lunch, nobody has to do anything. We don't even have to acknowledge that the person is a judge or a justice. But after lunch break, we go back to that courtroom and that judge, he or she enters that chamber. You're darn right. We don't stand up. We face a potential court-martial. As a result of that, as a result, we are still, however, not standing up for that human being. We are standing up for what that judge represents. And I apologize. I said court-martial. That would be, in a course, in a military courtroom. Uh, we would receive or be held in contempt of court. Excuse me, in a civilian court, we would be held in contempt if we did not stand up for the judge or the justice. However, again, it's not standing up for the human being. It is standing up for what that judge or justice represents. And that is the last defense of the Constitution of the United States of America in relation to the person being convicted of a crime. With our American experiment in government, the monarchs of Europe were also horrified to know that everybody in our federal political system, in terms of our Congress and our chief executive, technically have term limits. You might say, well, wait a minute, that president only having a two-year term limit, a two-term limit, that was passed in the 22nd Amendment in 1950. Right. Prior to that, there was no term limits. 22nd Amendment did modify that. But notice, that doesn't guarantee them two terms. That just guarantees that they can run for two terms. When they attempt to run for a second term, it doesn't always work out. Don't believe me? Just ask Presidents Trump, George H.W. Bush, or Jimmy Carter, or even Gerald Ford before him in more recent American history. Ladies and gentlemen, the people that set the term limits for our senators, representatives, and presidents of the United States, by and large, is us. In other words, the ultimate authority within the United States of America ultimately is the population. The governed are the ones that control the governors. That is the part of the American political dream that those founding fathers were grappling with in that famous seven, summer of 1787 that ultimately formulated in what became known as the Constitution of the United States. This newly found and newly interpreted freedom for a governed population was not lost on the some particular citizens back over in Europe. And the group of people that I'm talking about specifically are the citizens of France. Is it any surprise, folks, that right after the American Revolution comes to a close and our Constitutional Convention gets wrapped up, 
that that is just the beginning for what will become known is the horrifically violent French Revolution as the citizens would stand up against the idea of an established monarchy. So I leave you in this podcast with a quick question. Where did the founding fathers get these ideas from to put into a new form of government called a democratic republic? Were they that bright? I'm not here to argue that they weren't. But where did these ideas come from? After all, for those of my listeners who have never, who have had, excuse me, a course in political theory, you've never studied the American Revolution in your political theory class. Why? Because the American Revolution didn't produce, nor did the Constitutional Convention, it didn't produce anything brand new. Rather, what it produced was a combination of old political concepts. But once again, where did the founding fathers somehow find the freedom to scratch their heads and begin to approach political systems in such a brand new light? Hint, hint, a brand new light, L-I-G-H-T. And for those of you smiling and nodding, that's because you know where I'm going with this. And that's where we'll begin our next podcast with the discussion of where these lights suddenly came to settle over the heads of America's founding fathers in an age of nothing other than, of course, you guessed it, the Enlightenment. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, or email me with any questions or comments or book recommendations you might have. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.